Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. Well folks, on today's show we're going to look into what's all the controversy surrounding the development of the new toilet block over there in West Dubbo. We're also going to discuss how residents will be affected by the new road work beginning on Wheeler's Lane. And is work finally starting to begin on the Heritage Plaza outside of the Old Dubbo Jail? Hello there, Matt. How are you? I'm cold, actually. We've finally hit winter, although it's not technically winter yet, but it's going to be cold, isn't it? I know, a little bit of frost around, all that sort of stuff. It's... Mm. so it's like that old song beginning look like, like Christmas, but it's not really Christmassy. It's just that frosty, coldy sort of feel out here in wintry old Dubbo. And I've got a new purchase that I'm using now as I go and ride my bike early in the morning. I used to just put up with the cold and come back with cold toes. And yes, yes. I used to have these little booties that put over my cycling shoes. Purple booties, were they? I've got – well, they weren't purple, <laughs> but, but I've, I've now got – Heated socks. Heated socks? And they are a revelation. How do you get heated socks? You have to talk me through this because I'm not the IT man like you. So how do you get heated socks? A little battery in them or something? They do. They actually have a little battery. They can still go through the wash. The battery comes out. You unplug it to charge. Really? Plug it back in to put them in. You've got three heat settings. I actually found the first few times I used them when it wasn't one or two degrees, it was a little bit warm in that first thing in the morning. I actually found that on the hotter setting, they were too hot. I actually found I had to, <laughs> I had to pull my phone out because, of course, you control them via phone, they're yeah. connected via Bluetooth. So I had to actually turn them down to the middle setting rather than the hotter setting. This is a revelation to me. So you're going to have to tell me, like, where do you get these heated socks from? I couldn't find them locally, unfortunately, so I right. had to get them online. Yes. And they're made mainly for people that are using motorbikes because they've got an option where you can plug them into the cigarette lighter adapter on your motorbike. Of course, right. my push bike right. doesn't have a cigarette lighter adapter. <laughs> so they make an option also yeah. with batteries in them so they yeah. have been fantastic i'm very Look, i've got a birthday coming up <laughs> <laughs> this is magic this is absolutely a revelation i've got a feeling my wife will want a pair as well <laughs> <laughs> well again i use them on a push bike there's no reason you couldn't use them just sitting around the house sitting yes. out there doing some garden oh, work in the morning oh. whatever i'm not sure how they'd go running the batteries aren't too heavy and the batteries are on the side of your calf right. so they probably would be okay for running but i I haven't tried them. I don't think they'd be great, but on the bike, they're fantastic. Mm, mm. Oh, very very happy with them. Mate, I, I'm very, very impressed. And again, there's there's a little present. Uh, if you're wanting to think of something for me, you've just absolutely <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Uh, good idea. All right, mate. Listen, let's get into it. Now, there's a new toilet block going in over there in West Side. I just want to jump straight in on this one. Never in my life have I seen such controversy surrounding a toilet. Like, seriously, what is going on here? I do know there's that old toilet block over there in West Dubbo. Uh, Sorodin Cutler Park, is that the one? Or which one is it? Uh, this is the Lions Park. Lions Park, Sorodin sorry. Cutler Park. It's the other one, isn't Macquarie it? Macquarie yeah. Lions Park in West Dubbo. So, all right. So, there's that's the one just so we come in there, just off the bridge there. Correct. Now, that, that old toilet block's been there for, for many, many years. And it's, you know... Quite often that uh, you and I, we both run past that area. You can almost see the, the corrosion falling off with the, the the old metal bars and that's starting to break down. So it's in desperate need of repair. And obviously the decision's been made, look, let's not repair anymore. Let's knock this thing down. Now it's being replaced by this pretty cool system, I think. This new 3D printed style bricks and that. You can talk me through a lot more than my very basic understanding of it. But boy, oh boy, what's, what's going on with the controversy surrounding a toilet block? I'm with you. Most people that I've experienced over the years when they're talking to council, they're always asking council to build new things, Mm. to do different things. Can you add some new facility? And in this particular scenario, you're spot on. There's a few issues with the current toilet block. One, it's not 
it's not disabled friendly. So you've got a fairly large step. You mm. may remember, yes, it's not yes. there now, but you may remember from the riverside of that tour block is a fairly large step. So yep. people in a wheelchair, people with accessibility issues, very difficult. Some may say even impossible for some people to get mm. into that tour block. Mm. And then you write the corrosion, the beams that held the roof up, for example, you could see a significant amount of rust there. Yeah, yeah. That tour block has been there for a long time. And sure, you can keep, checking it to make sure it's stable, you can keep doing repairs on it, but it does get mm. to a point in time when you're spending so much money on it, it's time to replace it. So it had been decided already, time to replace that toilet block. And so mostly... Good idea, my thoughts. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Mostly yeah. when you say to people, we're going to replace that toilet block with a new toilet block that's accessible, that's got more cubicles, that's better than the one that's there, and obviously we don't have to do all the, spend all the money on mm. constant repairs. Mm. Most people say, good work, well done, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I'm one of them, let's tell you, yeah. <laughs> but so, so why are people upset? I'm not... Quite convinced. Maybe people don't like change because yeah, we have yeah, said part, as yes. part of this process, you may remember that we've reserved four blocks of land in a future residential release of council for 3D printed houses. Mm. And that's all very new. Yep. One of the things we thought would be that, gee, it'd be good to trial that on something mm. a bit simpler than a house yeah. and something that's paid for by the community rather yeah. than a private development. So let's do the toilet block with 3D printing. So we put the tender out for a 3D printed version of a toilet block. And again, that came in, tenders Mm. came in, we've got the price for that. Are they more expensive than a normal brick built toilet block? Well, you'd hope that they would be a bit cheaper Mm. and a bit quicker to build. Mm. And again, I suppose that's part of the reason for the trial is sure we can get tenders in and we get prices in, but sometimes things change during that process. So you want to make sure that it's going to be something that works it makes sense, it's a good price, it's construction time frame is good, so let's do all that on the toilet mm. block and a fairly simple thing. Yep. And so, again, there was some footage on the news and there was a bit of social media around the fact that this current one was being knocked down because yeah. obviously you've got to knock it down before you build the yeah, new one. It's a standard process. And again, as you said, the amount of controversy, the amount of negative commentary mm. around the fact that we were knocking down a toilet block to build a new toilet block, yeah. I was a bit... Yeah, folks, it's a toilet block, like yeah, seriously. That's right. <laughs> now, in terms of the pricing, to give you some examples, there have been a couple of other toilet blocks added mm. in the LGA over the last few years, not in our term of council, but in previous terms. So, for example, in Cameron Park in Wellington, there's a new toilet block there. It's got three unisex cubicles and one disabled toilet. Yeah. And the cost of that was around about $310,000, okay. and that was back in financial year 2021. So. Right. 2020 slash 2021 in that financial year. The Church Street toilet block, that was a bit controversial. Mm -hmm. And that one has got two unisex cubicles and one disabled toilet. And that was approximately $495,000 back in financial year 2019, 2020. Mm. This particular one over in Macquarie Lions Park in West Dubbo, Mm. We're estimating the cost at this stage is about $310,000. So that's in today's okay, so, Well, wow. So that's actually cheaper than the Cameron Park one. Yeah, similar which, price, but again, we've got we've moved yeah, forward in right. time. That's right. There's a natural uh, indexation, I suppose. That that's right. Yeah. So in this one, we've got, rather than unisex, we've got male and female. Yeah. We've got five female cubicles in the female toilet. Right. We've got two male cubicles plus three urinals in the male toilet and a disabled toilet. Wow. So okay. all of that for about that same $310,000. So in this situation then, so you're actually getting more options within the space there and more cubicles and 
stuff where people go to, normal sort of stuff for toilets, but it's actually a, a costing sounds pretty damn good. It does sound pretty reasonable when you look at those costs and what we yeah. want there in, in particular. So from a cost side, it sounds good, but again, it hasn't been finished yet. Maybe there'll be something else that happens during construction mm. where we find that some extras need to be added on as yeah. part of that whole tender yeah. process. So that's why I'm saying it looks okay at this stage, but mm. let's see what it actually costs us when it's finished. Yeah. And then time frame, again, we've knocked that down now. We'll then go and build a new one. We've got a certain time frame we expect it to be done in, but let's see how that goes and see how the time frame is compared to a normal construction. Mm. Now, the 3D printing should be faster because the company that's won the tender will come along and they'll set up a gantry. And in setting up that gantry, that's probably the longest part of the process. I don't know exactly yet because it hasn't happened yet. But so, the, so for those people out there who might understand, what, what's, what's a gantry? So it'll be something that you might see some poles set up that will actually have four corners, if you like, to right. that. And then the, the gantry itself will allow the head, the print head, to move around. Oh, okay, right, right. In in left, right, forward, back yeah, direction yeah. To, to print something, and then it can go up and down. So essentially what happens is it builds it by layers. Mm. And what comes out, it looks a bit like toothpaste. Right, it's obviously okay. concrete, not yeah, toothpaste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you essentially... this one sort of thing, that's right. Yes. <laughs> that's right. You'll have the shape of the toilet block itself. Mm. And then what happens is the the gantry with the print head on top of it mm. or underneath it moves along and prints out one layer right. and then goes back and prints out the next layer. And so the concrete's got to be wet enough or fluid enough to come out of a print head but also then stable enough that when it comes out, it doesn't just run away. Mm, so yeah. they're getting that mixture right. Yeah, and I think that's part of the secret sauce, if you like, yes. for people that are doing 3D printing, getting that mixture just right. Yeah. So it'll do layer by layer by layer, yeah. build up the layers of that. I think that'll happen in a fairly quick time frame yeah. to build it up. And then obviously you've got the fit out internal of the actual toilets and the plumbing and all do, those do things. Do they do any rendering on the outside or that's just basically the way this is sort of looks? So you'll have like a bit of an undulation on the outside in effect? Is that the way? These... You can do either. So okay. you can actually leave that sort of undulation, yeah. uneven look, or you could just do a render afterwards. Yeah, right. It'll be interesting to see how that all goes. Now, yeah. sure, you could do it in a normal brick construction. You could do it in prefab concrete and just stand up the walls. Yeah. But we believe this is a great opportunity for this council to lead mm. the way. Nowhere else in this nation have we found someone doing a 3D printed toilet block. Yeah. Is that because it's a bad way to do it or because it's too new? Yeah. Hopefully because it's too new. So I think we can be a real leader across yeah. the entire nation in yep. what we're doing with this. But also getting to that point where we've got something that's a good constructive method for what we're seeing an absolute need for, which is yeah, more housing in Dubbo. Absolutely. So if this all works, which I hope it will, then I think that'll give us a That's really a great good way community. to start this this concept at a reasonably small level as well. You know, like and it's it's one of those sort of things whereby if the community benefits from it, um, it's a reasonably small outlay, really, compared to some other costs we have to put in as council. But you're going to get the effect from the point of view of at least you can look at this at the end and go, well, does this work? Is this the way we want to go for future projects? Um, what can we learn from this? It's a great way to start it. So it, again, anyway, I think you're probably right from the point of view. I don't think some people like change. <laughs> and I think at the end of the day, that's possibly what this is all about. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing how it all goes. Can we go across and watch this? I'm assuming I might sell a few tickets, sit on the side and watch this pour down. It's going to happen pretty quickly, I'd suggest too. I actually think it'll be quite well viewed. I wouldn't even be surprised if some media outside of Dubbo, yeah. maybe Sydney media, maybe national media, is interested in this. Mm. Certainly the media is interested in the knocking 
looking down and some people said, oh, well, it must have been a quiet news day. But <laughs> I think the whole concept, and it's still yeah. news, it's still spending community money, so it's still news oh, and yeah. newsworthy. But I actually think there'll be some interest in the I printing agree. process. It's very fascinating. And I didn't think about this until someone mentioned it to me when they were interviewing me one day about it. They said, sure, there'll be some interest in when it's being printed, mm. but there'll probably be some interest after it's being printed because people will say, oh, go and have a look at that toilet block. That was 3D printed. Yes. And I hadn't thought about that, but I actually think that will happen as well. Yes. I think people are going to travel 500 kilometres to see it. No, it's but I think not if going someone, to be like a local tourist attraction, but it'll be certainly something I think will create a lot of interest. And if someone was in town that was here to see the zoo or whatever, yeah, yeah. they may well go, oh, let's have a look at that toilet block that was Absolutely. 3D printed. Yeah. While we're on that, just a quick one. I thought I might mention the MLAK system. Oh, yes. So this is the Master Locksmith's Access Key system. And it was actually started way back in 1994 by Pitwater Council had the idea and they teamed up with the MLAA to look at the system because disabled toilets sometimes are used by people without disabilities. And that would be quite annoying, I would think, mm. if I came along in my wheelchair and if I couldn't access the normal toilet for a, a range of reasons, the way it was constructed, etc. And I went to go and use the disabled toilet and I went, oh, it's locked. And I sat there waiting outside and then mm. someone walks out, obviously not disabled, and yes. they're taking up the disabled toilet. Yes. It'd be a bit frustrating. So this is where Pitwater Council started the concept and it's now used across the nation where you can apply to have an MLAK system key or, right, or a right. master locksmith access key, yep. you've obviously got to have a, a valid reason. Being in a wheelchair would be a valid reason. And you get that key. And then there are various disabled toilets across the nation that that one key will work in all of those toilets. Oh, wow. Now, the interesting part is take Wellington, Cameron Park, for example. Yes. The feedback we've had from the Wellington community is there's not enough toilets there. Right. And the disabled toilet is one with an MLAK. So that means it can't be used by anyone else but a disabled person. But when a busload of people mm, pull up there okay. and there's only three cubicles, are we better off not using the disabled key yep. and yep. letting anyone use it, yes. which means that sometimes people will be using it when a disabled person wants to use it or mm. keeping it for disabled people. So it's an interesting concept. Mm. I actually really like the concept. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to pick the right place to use it. Now, over in this particular one in Macquarie Lions Park, yes. I don't know what we're doing with that one in terms of a disabled toilet key on that one, but given the fact we've got five female cubicles and two male cubicles, mm. you might say there's enough toilets there that you could have mm. an MLAK mm. on there. So it's interesting. I actually didn't know about that until last no, I was year. I aware of it myself, actually, Under, under council, yeah, yeah, and yeah. someone talked about the disabled toilet key, and I, I didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Again, people that are, have got a disability would be well and truly aware of that, but it is an interesting concept. Yeah. And I like the concept, but choosing when to use it is interesting as well. Absolutely. Well, speaking of change, and I'm pretty sure the fact at the end of the day, look, there's going to be some people that will be uh, a bit frustrated by the nature of any sort of road work on things. It always changes the plans on. But at the end of the day, we get a great result. Now, I know that there's a, a section of road up here between uh, Wheeler's Lane, on, on Wheeler's Lane there, between uh, Birch Avenue and the train line that looks as though it's about to get some reconstruction work happening. So potentially, Matt, I think this is going to create, um, look, I'll put it down, probably it's a bit of a headache for some people initially, but any sort of reconstruction work always seems to create a bit of a headache for people initially until we get adjusted to it. So what's happening up here in regards to this road work? It's actually been one of the areas that people have been requesting to me anyway to have some work done on there. Mm. Sheraton Road is still the number one 
yes. place that people ask yes. for yes. things to change on. Wheels Lane would be right up there, possibly number two. Saxon mm. Road probably be up there as well. Mm. But this particular area, finally, now we've got the road that's dried out enough. So we've had lack of rain for, yes. or, or not yes. lack of rain, but lack of severe rain for yep. a long enough period of time that work can be done. And we've got some of the money to do that. So that's going to start from the 22nd of May, from Monday the 22nd of May is when that Reconstruction so this is basically this Monday coming up, isn't it? It's Essentially, about to begin. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that will go through. There'll be a range of works there. It'll probably be about September, maybe end of September. Okay, so it's, it's going to take a couple of months, obviously, to get through the process. That's right. There's a fair bit of work to be done there, mm. and and a range of things. For example, there's a disused water main that's got to be that's underground when you start digging up. There's a, a gas main. There's some delays mm. that will be possible around just fixing up some of those and making mm. sure they're right. So when you start doing Proper road work, not just a bit of patching. Yes, you start yeah. digging down and the surfaces under the ground that start yeah, to be impacted. So there'll be a fair bit of work there. I was at a, a meeting one day many months ago and someone made the offhand comment to me that said, everyone wants the roads to be in perfect condition, but no one wants the delays associated with yes. roadworks. Yes, How do you marry those right. two up? Yeah, so yeah, you want the absolutely. roads to be fixed instantly without those delays because when the state government doing, was doing lots of work on the highway between Wellington and Dubbo, I remember people talking about that lot, complaining about the delays. <coughs> you had to allow five extra minutes or whatever it might be for yes. the trip between Dubbo and Wellington, but they all wanted the road fixed. Yes, And yes. that's the same scenario with this. There will be some interruptions. There will be some okay. detours in place. There will be businesses impacted. There will be a whole range of things impacted mm. along there. So I apologise for that. But the reality is to get the work done, mm. we have to actually do Absolutely. some road closures and close off, even just sometimes one lane of traffic closed off. Stop-go signs, diversions, detours, mm. all the rest of it, that will happen mm. and it will take many months because road work seemed to take a long period of and, time. And I suppose to get it done right, it has to, doesn't it? Like you've mentioned there are a couple of things that once you start digging down and uh, you start uh, looking at gas pipes and uh, and water mains and all these type of things, uh, these things don't happen just overnight to suddenly get fixed up and get resorted, do they? There's a bit of an issue with that. Just in, re- just in regards to it too, what, uh, what would be the actual probably cost to do something like this? Um, because obviously a lot of listeners want to know that how much money does it actually take out of our budget to construct something like this? And it's funny because I've had some people say to me, there's a bit of bitch moved up there. Just go and hire a whacker packer mm. and just go and do that this afternoon, will you? Oh, happy days. That all takes. That's right. Okay. So for the higher cost of 100 bucks and a couple of hours labour, it should all be done. The cost that we've budgeted for this is $1.774 million. Yeah, right. Okay, it's a bit more than a whack of pack on a Sunday afternoon. It is exactly right. Even at double time on a Sunday, it's it's still going to be a bit more than that. And I was at a Rhodes Congress many years ago, and I did say to them, and my kids were watching the movie Cars at the time, Mm. and there was Betsy, the greatest road-making machine ever invented. And I said to this group of engineers sitting around a table, I said, are we going to get to the stage at some time when we can just tow Betsy behind a truck and have the road done in and some... And looking magnificent, by the way. Right, perfect condition. And they all laughed at me and said <laughs> it was the craziest idea ever. Yes. So it always seems to be to get the road done right. It's a bit like painting. If you just go and whack a coat of paint on whatever surface you've got, mm. if it's a bad surface to begin with, the paint job looks terrible. Mm. If you just go and whack some bitumen over the top of whatever's there, it's going to not be a good end result. Mm. To get the road right, you're digging down, you're putting the right soils and the right compounds, the lime or whatever it might need. I'm not a road expert, Mm, but mm. all those different things. The actual ceiling of it is just a small amount on the top. If you haven't Mm. done it right all underneath there, and that can be fairly deep depending on the load that's expected on there, 
then the top's going to be terrible. So mm. it isn't just as easy of getting Betsy to come along and yes. roll a bit of bitumen over the top of yes. that. It really needs to be dug down. It's a bit like an iceberg, properly. isn't it? You know, what you actually see on the top with the bitumen sort of scenario, but all the work underneath it, like an iceberg, 90% of it sits underneath that side of things at the very tip. And to ma- you're right. And to make it worse, what we saw during all those wet water, wet weather events during mm. the end of 2022 was that the subsoil was so wet and the ground was so wet that water was coming up from underneath. So you won't worry about rain hitting the top of the seal and running off. Mm. The ground was so wet underneath, water was coming up from underneath. And I saw some work being done on somewhere. It was literally water bubbling up from underneath the road. They started to dig away some of the top seal and there was water coming up from underneath. Mm. And so you're trying to deal with all of that. And again, that's where the construction is so important. So it is expensive to do that. Mm. It'll be done right. It'll be in much better condition. There'll be some interruptions. I'm sorry about that. Look, I think that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Does this also come from our funding from the point of view of local government out of our coffers or is this a state government uh, funded piece? I know that in regards to roads, you've got your federal, state and uh, and local responsibilities. This, I'm assuming, falls under our local responsibility? Yeah, correct. This is a local road defined as a local road. We might be using some money that we've received from state or federal Mm. for this, but essentially it's a local road as opposed to the highways, which Mm. we don't touch, or if we do touch them, we're being paid by the state government to touch them. This is one that we have to make the decision on where to spend that money out of our budget. Speaking of money, uh, in regards to this one, the emergency services levy, um, now, this only just sort of came to my uh, understanding of the fact here in regards to this that the responsibility of local council uh, to support financially the emer- some of the emergency services group around town. Um, so, co- look, there's a couple of questions here for you. Uh, number one, who do we actually support financially, some of these emergency services groups? Who is it responsible for the council? Who do we actually support here with it? And has there been a change in regards to the funding of this from uh, state government? There's a thing called the Emergency Services Levy. Right. And the state government tells each council how much they have to pay. Mm. It's not a thing that we choose to pay. It's not something that we go, oh, let's just give some money to the emergency services. It's uh, an invoice, if you like, that's sent out to each council. We pay it on a quarterly basis. So here's your annual amount. Each quarter, we've got a certain amount of that. A quarter so you're of that paying amount. this back to the state government? We pay this money to the state government. And right. then the emergency services levy is put into a pool that's then used for the three different emergency services that come under this, which is the SES, the Rural Fire Service, RFS, and then Fire and Rescue. So when we talk about, for example, the fire brigades, you have a house fire, the fire Mm. brigade turns up, that comes under the umbrella of Fire and Rescue. Mm. So those three separate services are all funded as part of the emergency services levy. So state government pays these groups, but we pay the state government to pay these groups. <laughs> Is that how it works? Yeah, pretty much hit the nail <laughs> on the head. I don't know the exact funding right. in terms of how much the total cost of those three services is for the state government and how much is contributed by the state government by the local governments across the state. Mm. But essentially you're right. We pay money to the state government and then the state government funds those services. And it's one of those things that I think people don't realise there might be a new rural fire service truck, for example, being launched, mm. and we'll have the relevant state government minister turn up, cut the ribbon and say, isn't this fantastic, and this is the state government really making sure that you've got the services in place that you need mm. in this particular community. Mm. People in the community, the ratepayers in the community, don't realise that some of their ratepayers' money has gone to the state government to allow them to fund that and then take yes. the credit for it. Yes. <laughs> it's like me buying a gift for someone, but then the person who I, who 
is going to give then the gift to that other person sort of stuff almost like but you don't get any sort of uh, acclamation for the fact that you're the one actually purchasing the gift in the first place. Something like that. That's not a very, very convoluted example. <laughs> I probably just made it worse for people trying to understand how this thing works. But the biggest problem here is, so councils have accepted this is a bit of cost shifting and we've been paying this amount for mm. years. And what was happening with the state government was they accepted the fact that it was a bit of cost shifting. So they gave us a back a bit as a levy assistance. Mm. So it got more complicated than what you've described now because now we pay some money to the state government yes. for the state government to use to fund the emergency services. Yes. But then the state government said, well, we think we're charging you a bit too much, so each year we'll give you a levy assistance amount back. So Wouldn't it ra- just be easier to turn around and say, next year don't pay so much? <laughs> that would make <laughs> sense. <laughs> that just makes sense. <laughs> it would. But it gets worse oh, because God, okay. yep. we've got our draft budget out on display. As you know, yes. we've talked about that. Then, as part of that draft budget, we had an amount in the emergency services levy for that. Right. And we based it on in 2023, so 2022, 2023 financial mm. year, mm. the amount was $1.645 million that we paid in the levy. So so every year we, we've paid $1.65 million to the state government. It's indexed, so it's gone it's, up, so okay. the previous year would have been less that's, than that. That's a basic sort of starting point anyway, I suppose. That's right. So in, in our current financial year we're in, yep. $1.645 million. Yep. But... From that, we received a $425,000 levy back from the state government. Okay. So you take that off yep. that 1.645. Yep. about 1.2 sort of thing now, basically. That's right. Round numbers, that's spot on. This year, they said, and again, not until the last minute, yeah. by the way, we're putting your levy up more than CPI. We expected it to be a CPI type amount, but we're putting it up 11.6%. So, so that's, that's what we one. have to pay the state government. So now it's up to $1.836 million. Right. And the $425,000 levy assistance fund, we're not putting that by CPI. In fact, we're reducing it to zero. Oh, so not giving me anything back now? Correct. So we went from paying, as you said, round numbers, $1.2 million, say, to wow. $1.836 so, million. So does that mean we have to now find... Another what? Six hundred thousand dollars. Six hundred and seventeen thousand dollars extra. We've got to find. And this comes now expect. outside of our budget time frame too. And that's the problem. So when we go back to consider our final budget, mm. we're asking for submissions from the public. We'll consider all those submissions that come in, and then oh, by the way, find an extra six hundred and seventeen thousand dollars. And it's probably not quite correct. It's being a bit harsh because we did expect it to be a small increase, mm. and we didn't know how much the levy would increase by. So mm. we might have expected to have to find an extra fifty grand, maybe, but we certainly didn't expect to have to find an extra six hundred and seventeen thousand no, dollars. And I suppose the biggest issue, and this isn't just the regional council, this is councils across the state. The biggest issue we've had, and there's certainly been some discussion in the media about it. I've certainly talked to some Sydney yep. media about it. Yep. There's certainly been some action from various groups, various groups representing different councils. The biggest issue has been how late in the process it's occurred. You don't like paying extra money full stop, yeah. but after you've already done your budget, yeah. after we've put the budget Surely on public display... Surely they must display, have known that, that every council in the state's doing their budgets right now. They would know that, and certainly we had a discussion very early on with the local government minister, he's got over 30 years' experience in local government. Yeah. He'd been a councillor and a mayor in local government for, let's say, over 30 years. Yeah. So he fully understands that budgetary process. Mm. So it has been a bit disappointing from all of that. Yeah. Bottom line is we have to find the money. We have to find the money in the budget. So when we get various requests that will come in as part of our submission process, juggling those around, mm. we didn't have spare money anyway, but no. juggling those around, finding this extra money and finding money for things that people might ask for, 
that's going to be a bit of a challenge. Is, is this a classic example, too, of you talked about before cost shifting? You know, with state governments um, shifting the costs of these types of operations back into local government. There's a whole range of areas that are subtle cost shifting. This mm. isn't quite so subtle. No, this is smacking your face, really. <laughs> this is a this bit really less is. subtle. Some yeah. of them I look at and I go, oh, gee, that's just a little extra impost on council or yeah. a little extra service that we've got to provide that used to be provided by the state government. Mm. So you get some subtle ones, but mm. this one is just black and white. Oh. We used to pay a certain number, let's say a bit over 1.2 million. Yeah. Now it's going to be over 1.8 million. We've got to find the extra money from somewhere. And the probably the most frustrating part is that I part give us a rate peg amount. Yeah. Whereas the state so that's how much we can put our rates up by as a maximum. Yeah. But the state government just went and put up one of our significant levies by eleven point six percent. Yeah. So yeah. that you get pegged on one and then literally you get pegged on the other. <laughs> that's right, exactly. I noticed Matt that uh, during the week um had a meeting here with the Western Councils, the Alliance of Western Councils, and there was a board meeting there for this group. Um, now, again, this is the old OROC group uh, that used to be established, and uh, this current group, I think, consists of about 12 councils uh, here in the region. And it looks as though you've had a meeting with uh, some representatives from state uh, government level. So how did the meeting go? Very good, and this is, you're spot on, this is what used to be called OROC, that OROC got blown up for some strange reason and now it's been reformed, rather than have the same name, it's called the Alliance of Western Councils, mm. and so we meet at various locations around the region, it's great, we get to go to places like Burke or Cobar or Bree or Ningen, wherever it might be, yep. this particular one we had in Dubbo, we share it around, take it in turns obviously as to where nice. it goes, but we also typically invite various ministers along and various politicians from our area yeah. and various groups that might have some relevance to majority of those councils, for example. Mm. We've got new ministers now. We've got new government, new ministers, so it's a good yes. chance for us yes. to meet some of these new ministers. So on Friday last week, we had the Honourable Tara Moriarty, who's right. the Minister for Ag, Minister for Regional New South Wales and Minister for Western New South Wales. What are we actually Minister for Western New South Wales now? Well, we did have a, a is minister. That, is that a new portfolio? No, in the last government, we had a Minister for Western New South Wales okay, as well. So we've got essentially... This, uh, you know, Tara had those three ministries, but mm. all very relevant mm. to councils in the area, Minister for Regional, Minister for Western and Minister for Ag. Mm. Those councils at the in the alliance, obviously, yeah. those three portfolios are very relevant. Absolutely. It was a great chance for Tara to listen. And she did that quite well, I think. She mm. sat there and said, tell us about the issues. And lots of issues were thrown around from the various councils in the room. So that was good, I think. I, mm. I just think the idea there that... You come along and listen to people. She's not specifically familiar with some of the issues around these areas, but mm. she needs to learn about those pretty quickly and get up to speed. So yeah. great chance for her to listen. Yeah, it's great she came out for that, actually, too. Exactly right. And I think that's important as well, getting out to some of these areas. Sometimes we'll have meetings in Sydney at Parliament House because it's convenient for some of the ministers mm. and mm. it's easy to get them then. But what you really want is you really want them out mm. on our turf just Absolutely. to see what's out here that's and right. understand that a bit better, talk to some local people about things. So that was good. We also had our local member, Dougal Saunders, came along. He's very familiar with the Alliance. He's met with us many times. But again, just an update, just catching up on any current issues, what he can help with. It's a bit different now. In his previous yes, yes. life, he's before March. He's taken March. on a more senior role these days. Well, he was he was a minister before in yes. government. Now he's not a minister and not in government. Well, that's right. I suppose he's, he's still the leader. He's become the leader now, hasn't he's he? He's the leader. So yes, different. Yes. And again, that was a good chance for yeah. us to talk to, to Dougal around those issues. Roy Butler, who's the member for Barwon. So some of our councils are in the Barwon yes. uh, electorate. So again, good to hear from Roy. And 
his role has changed a bit as well because now, as an independent in the last government, mm. he had some abilities, but in this government with a just minority mm. government, mm. then you've got slightly different abilities yeah, as an independent. Right. More so potential sway, let's just say. Absolutely right. So that was mm. interesting to hear from him. We had a few representatives from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority come along and just give us an update on there. Okay. And yep. they're still in a bit of a listening phase. And the other really interesting one was Charles Sturt University had a couple of representatives come along talking about their School of Rural Medicine program. Right. Now, we've I'm talked sure about he would have had a very comforting ear on a few, a few of those people, <laughs> well, I'm sure. Well, it was quite funny because, well, we, we go back one step. We had yeah. we, we know about the University of Sydney School of Rural Health mm. program that's run here in Dubbo. We've got about 100 students here in the four-year program, the full four-year program yeah. now. Yep. So that's fantastic for Dubbo and for regional areas. You mm. get educated as a doctor in a regional area. The data shows that you're more likely to stay regional. Fantastic. Charles Sturt's also started their rural program. Now, they run that slightly differently. They run it as an undergrad program compared mm. to Sydney Uni's postgrad. Mm. And they do years one and two classroom teaching in Orange. And then years three to five, they have people go out, the doctors, training doctors, out in the region and spend time in various regions. Yep. But when they showed the map on screen, there was a big hole in the map which was basically where all the alliance councils are, oh, all the, right? the Western councils. Yeah, that's right, okay. So what the professor who was talking to us, Damien, said to us was, mm. we want to run this program and we need more placements. Mm. And so we're just trying to ascertain in the room, is there any support for training doctors in some of your regions? Yes, sir. Here, here, here. Over here. Get out of the way. Me, me, me. <laughs> you can imagine the reaction. Is oh, exactly absolutely. That. Pushing and shoving, I suggest. Get to the front of the line. And I'm actually quite comfortable. I, I spoke to Damien a bit more afterwards mm. and talked about how well the Sydney Uni program's running, the great CSU campus we've got here. Mm. And I said, we'd love to see you do that in Dubbo. But the important part is in the region. Mm. So he was looking at Narromine at one point, for example. Okay. I said, I'd be quite happy with Narromine. I don't, it doesn't always have to be Dubbo, Dubbo, Dubbo. No, no. The region, our symbiotic relationship with yeah. the region is so important that getting things in the region. Mm. I said, I want it here rather than in Orange, yeah. for example, but I don't really mind where it is. If, if you choose Narromine, that's still good for the whole area. Absolutely. And I think it'll Strength still be more all, doesn't it? Really? It does. That's exactly right. So that was pretty interesting. But again, absolutely, there was a fair bit of support in the room for something along those lines, having some of that rural education, and we'll see oh, more excellent. doctors out here. Yeah. One of the things that's crazy is that you've got doctors in Sydney that are underemployed. I'm mm. not saying unemployed, mm. but not getting enough hours per week, and everyone in the room is going, oh, oh my send them out here, yeah, absolutely. please. Come on. <laughs> We've got Get a, a rural need. change. That's it. <laughs> An yeah. absolute need out here in so many areas. Yeah. So anyway, that's good, but those alliances are great. And some of the great work you do at those alliances is at the morning tea and lunch breaks, when you sit around and talk about nothing in particular, but yeah. it might just be a question from one other mayor yeah. about a bit of something networking that's going on. A little bit of networking, yeah. always valuable. But I, I really do like that group of, of mayors and GMs, very down to earth, and just lots of good different ideas and so much variety. And yeah. that's one of the really important bits of feedback that was given to Tara was please don't ever think that the 128 councils across the state one size fits all mm. because in this room you'll have 15 different sizes required for mm. things that need mm. to happen. So you really need to understand the differences amongst all those councils uh, to true. really be able to deliver good programs. Yeah, that's great. Well, there was a uh, council workshop uh, during, held during the week in regards to the Northwest Urban Release Area. Now, of course, this is the residential area that's uh, looking at being opened up well, starting to get opened up from the point of view of getting the project started, at least. Um, how did the meeting go? What's what's in regards to this workshop? What's what's the plan 
moving from this workshop and who was actually at the meeting? So one of the things I think that's really important is for the public to understand when something comes to a council meeting, mm. what's happened before that. And this is a, a really good example. We've talked about it before. We've been to previous workshops. I've gone along and attended some industry or some stakeholder workshops that didn't really involve council mm. as such. Obviously, it still involves council because it's still an important part for a council project, but mm. it involved developers and various stakeholders. I've been to meetings where we've been out on site and maps have been laid out on bonnets of cars and we've got 3D printed images of, of or not images, physical structures of yes. what things will look like there. There's been other planning where we've had consultants and other planning where we haven't had consultants. It'll eventually get to the stage after these various workshops and meetings where we'll have a recommendation with some more definite, but maybe not absolute chiseled in stone yep. definite plans, but more yep. definite plans that'll eventually make its way through to a standing committee meeting. Yep. And that'll eventually make its way through to a council meeting, but that'll be for a draft plan of that to go out on public display to mm. invite submissions from the mm. public and then finally come back to a council meeting to finally be resolved to say, that's our plan going forward. Yes. Yeah. And I think the important thing about this is just for the public to understand how many steps are happening. So here's another workshop that we held. Yep. We talked about things. We got an update from the consultants. This yep. one was basically involving, to answer your question about who was there, councillors, some senior council staff and the consultants yep. to give us an update on how things are progressing. Yep. Some of the various plans and ideas that have been put together beforehand, mm. maybe just refining those a little bit more, getting those to be a little bit more concrete in terms of mm. what they might look like. But there are many steps. So when someone mm. sees something at a council meeting, you go, oh, What'd you do that for? Well, mm. That's a crazy idea there. Well, it might be a crazy idea, and that's why we get feedback. But it took a long time to get to that crazy idea. <laughs> it did take a long time, that's <laughs> right. And one of my frustrations, when I first got on council, I went, right, here's some things I want to change. I want to fix this. And, and it seemed to take a long time, and I got mm. a bit frustrated in the beginning. And I mm. remember talking to some of the other councillors that had been there a bit longer than myself and even some of the senior staff. I'm, going, oh, I'm a bit frustrated with this. I want to get this done. They said, hold on there, young fella. We need to yes. make sure that we get things right because we're not dealing with your money, mm. we're dealing with everyone's money, yep. and we're also not just planning for something that's going to happen next week, mm. we're planning for things that are happening decades in advance. Yes. If we do our job right, yep. we'll have spent the money in the best possible way, and we'll get great long-term outcomes for Dubbo. Do it so do it right. That's right, mm. and just almost accept the fact that it's going to take longer, because I, mm. I didn't like that, I wanted to get things done, yes, but yes. accept the fact that it's going to take longer, and accept the fact that you've got to get people to understand where you're going, mm. and make sure that everyone's along for the ride, and get feedback from everyone, and then make your final mm. decision. So mm. I did have to change my attitude in terms of timeframes, mm. and so I adjusted that and said, okay, I accept now that I can't get it done in a day, I'll get it done in three days, or mm. whatever it might be, I'll mm. get it done in yep, a lot yep. longer time frame. But you've got all these things along the way. And what I've learned during that process with all that time being on council is that, yes, that great idea I had, which let's implement that today, mm. when you take a step back, go through that planning phase, get lots of feedback, make sure you've got lots of different opinions there, what you typically end up with is better. Sometimes it might be mm. the same, but what you typically end up with is better than that little idea you came up with mm. and you want to put in place mm. straight away. So you go, oh, wow, that whole process does deliver good benefits, but it yeah. also means the community is along for the ride. I think that's really, really important as well. Well, you look at this situation now. So in regards to this this new proposed uh, residential precinct, um, have we, are we any closer to a timeline in regards to when this is going to begin? I think I've said before that probably the first house won't be built on there till the end of next year. Yeah. And I didn't see anything at the workshop 
that would make me change my mind on mm. that. So that's probably still, and that is an approximate time frame. Mm. Please don't go back and play this back to me in, <laughs> in a year and a half's time and say, we haven't got a house there and it's 31st of December 2024. Yeah. But just to give people an idea, it's not going to have a house built on it next week. Mm. There's going to be a fair bit of planning and a fair bit of underground infrastructure and mm. even just some roads that need to be put in place yeah. to make anything happen there. Yeah. So there's a fair bit to go, and, and maybe that's being a bit ambitious, but I think that's the sort of realistic time frame. End of next year, you might be ready to build a house there. Hmm. Oh, very good. Ah, uh, look, you know, I was driving down uh, town last night and uh, driving past the Old Dubbo Jail there, and I saw this big mesh set up outside the front there where that, uh, the proposed Heritage Plaza is uh, going to be put in. Got a little bit excited to be, actually. I, I must admit, I, I sort of driving past there and I thought, hello, something's happening here. What's going on? Are we uh, getting a little bit closer now to uh, getting a start on the Heritage Plaza outside of the Alderbo Jail? Only a little bit closer. A little fraction. A little fraction. If we go back a few steps, when the old building that was there was knocked down, mm. the process was to knock all that down and clean it up ready to put the Heritage Plaza in. Mm. In the process of doing that, the construction company was working away there, dug down, you might say a little bit too deep, but dug down deep enough okay, that they yes, covered yes. some areas that might be elements, including walls or foundations or fences. Mm. They might go back to an 1863 courthouse. They might be from an 1896 perimeter wall. We don't know. a lot know. of might be, isn't there? That's you right. Know? Yes. So, so if, if they hadn't have gone that far down... It would it be a case of, well, it possibly could be there, but let's just keep going. If they hadn't gone quite so far down, we'd probably have it finished by now. There you go. Okay. But, All right. And I'm not being critical of them. I'm no, just saying that, that things happen. Yes. So Heritage New South Wales, we had to inform Heritage New South Wales what was found there. Mm. And they said, hold the bus. We are now, Heritage New South Wales are now the approval authority for the next stages of the work. Okay. What we've now had to do is we've had to engage an organisation. So we've, we've got a company in. They're going to do a complete historic archaeological assessment right. and an archaeological research design for the proposed Heritage Plaza. Right. What will that look like? Yeah, I, I don't say. know. Yeah, <laughs> Is this going to change the whole concept of the design? or I hope not change the whole concept. It right. could be a range of things. It could be, for example, they might uncover a range of things that are related to some of those walls or the courthouse, and they might say, this is so significant and so important, mm. we need to dig down, expose that, and maybe put some perspex over the top so that you can still view it without okay. doing any damage to it. Yep. Or it may be, okay, we know it's there now, so we'll take some pictures or we'll, we'll do some interpretive designs on some panels mm. and now you can cover it up, but above ground there'll be some information about what's below ground. Here lies. Here. Exactly right. Mm. Or it might be something else completely different altogether okay. and that's why we've had to engage a company to go and see what's there, make some assessment on what is there. Right. Then tell us what you would recommend doing with it, yep. then go through council and approve all that, but then send it to Heritage New South Wales to actually be the, con the final consent authority. So let's not hold our breath too quickly, folks, on this one. <laughs> it might be a little while yet. <laughs> I, I the wisdom on the it. patience we talked about earlier is going to have to apply. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I'd love to see it finished because it's a project mm. that has gone on for way too long. Mm. Mm. But we've got to go through the right process okay. and get it done right. And it will be fantastic when it's yeah. finished. Yeah. I guarantee that. But, but well, at least we seem to be there. moving in the direction. At least it's not sort of sitting still there like it seemed to be for months and months. So that's that's, yeah. that's the upside. There is some action happening and we will get there eventually. But at yes. the moment, please have patience. That's right. <laughs>
Uh, this, uh, now, I imagine the fact here that, um, if, if you haven't noticed already, the show's in town. And of course, it's a very special show this year. It is uh, the 150th Royal Dubbo Show. I'll call it the Royal Dubbo Show. I'm pretty sure it's just a Dubbo Show, but I'll put a Royal fronting in front of this one today. So the Dubbo Show, 150 years. So Matt, um, uh, you were at the opening uh, the other night, so or the other day. So how did it all go? Yeah, fantastic. And it's it's interesting. It's the 150th show or the celebration of the 150th show. Yes, yes. I think if you count it up, it's probably not quite the 150th. The first show was in 1872, which yes. is actually the same year that Dubbo was declared a municipality. So right. we had our first mayor and our first council back in 1872. Oh, does yeah. that make 151 though? Well, <laughs> there's, a, there's a few <laughs> things you could look at there because I think there's been a few years, maybe 13 oh. years, they've skipped a show as oh, well. Okay, right. so, okay, so we're doing a bit of a rounded off figure here maybe. Is that how this is working? You can ask the Dubbo Show Society. Excellent. They're saying no, this is the, I'll save that for another podcast. the celebration of the 150th show for Dubbo, which was fantastic. So they did get... The Honourable Margaret Beasley, AD, KC, Governor of New South Wales, nice. attend to do the opening. And oh. it was actually great to catch up with Margaret or Her Excellency. You've got history with Margaret here? I Paul? have, actually, yes. because way back in 2019, right. we were doing Tour to O'Rock. Yes. And we ride through various areas in the region. And we happened to have an overnight stop at Cobar. We'd just ridden from Burke that morning, so 160 kilometres. We got right. to Cobar. It's actually, As you do. We, we call it, it our yes. rest day that day because most days we're doing 200 160 Ks, that would be like a lifetime of cycling for me. But anyway, <laughs> for blokes like you, 160 in one day, that's impressive. So we got to, to Cobar. We were checking in at our hotel. We had yes. beautiful accommodation that night and all in our cycling gear, all after having ridden 160 oh, yeah, kilometres yeah, in the, yeah. the nice heat Sweaty of the day. Sweaty up in the Lycra, yes. And just next to the motel, there was a lot. There were a lot of cars around. There was some function there, and mm. I said to the motel operator, "What's going on next door?" And they said, oh, "We've got Her Excellency the Governor in town, right, right. and there's a, a function there." And I went, "Oh, yes. gee, that'd give the cyclists a bit of a boost having the Governor come along and say hello." So yes, yes. I'm there in my cycling gear, still very sweaty yes. from a nice hot day yes. out on the bike. Yes. And so I ducked into the function, and I oh, said, you didn't. Oh, yep, in the cycling <laughs> gear, ducked in, and I just said, "Oh, look." Um, I'm looking for Her Excellency. And right. Oh, in your lycra. In my lycra. The, the whole gear. Sweating That's up right. a storm still from doing 160 Ks. That's yes. right. I went over and I was very polite. And I, I said, excuse me, madam, I've got some cyclists outside that have just ridden 160 kilometres raising money for Macquarie Homestay and Dubbo. They would be incredibly honoured if you could come out and just say hello. So she left the function she was at. No. Is that right? Did she? Came out, said hello, had a bit of a chat to them, stood there for a photo with all these people in yeah. the lycra and... and, yeah. and her Excellency, all nicely dressed, and then went back into the function. So, <laughs> oh, yes. and they they couldn't That's stop brilliant. talking about that. Yeah, yeah. There was one particular guy who was based in Sydney, and he yeah. said that is uh, an unbelievable thing. I'm here in the middle of nowhere. I'm yeah, out here yeah. in Cobar. Never run into the governor in Sydney and here yeah. in Cobar and, and the governor's coming. So is. I mentioned that to her. I don't know if she remembered it or not, but she, she said <laughs> she did. <laughs> she was very polite. And said, oh, yes, I remember uh, that. So I wonder she didn't see you coming again. Uh, security. <laughs> security, I've seen this man before. Yeah, I, I, did, I did say, you might not recognise me. You've met me before, but I was in Lycra that time. So. <laughs> but on the show itself, congratulations to, and I, I did say the other day on radio that people that have been volunteering for 150 mm. years. I didn't mean individuals that have been volunteering for 150 <laughs> years, but it has been run by volunteers for yeah, 150 yes, years. Right. Yeah. They've got a great volunteer committee now, but yep. the volunteers involved with that mm. have been doing a great job for so many years. And I remember as a kid when you'd go there and you'd go on the rides or dodge mm. cars or you'd watch some of the, the cars out in the middle or whatever it might be, you didn't really think, gee, 
they must have a great committee mm. that does a whole bunch mm. of organisation mm. around this show. Yeah. As you get a bit older and you realise how many things have to fall into place for one event to happen. Absolutely. Especially yeah, when you yeah. end up going through and actually doing some work in some of those yourself, yeah, you realise yeah. how many things have to happen. So you just go, wow, for this show to happen each well, year. There's so many different things at the show. That's the thing, isn't exactly it? Like right. Just running the agricultural section would be hard enough or the – you know, even establishing all the networking there for the sideshow alley, or or running the the area where the pavilion sections are. It's just massive, isn't it? So oh, they're yeah, incredible. they're an incredible group. Yeah, that's right. And mm. and I just some memories. Someone asked me the other day from memories. My best friend from school. Mm. He was best man at my wedding. Yeah. Still great friends with him now. Yeah. Graham Campbell's his name. Yeah. I met him at the Debo show when we were very young. We we're at yeah. different schools. Yeah. And he was eating some Samboy salt and vinegar chips, and I was a big fan of salt and vinegar <laughs> yeah, chips. Yeah, yeah. And he shared them with me, and I thought, gee, this kid's generous. Yeah. And then he said he went for Manly Ringer, and I said, I go for Manly Ringer too. I must admit, he's a turncoat now, he goes for the Roosters now. So, anyway, uh, he used to go for Manly. I thought, wow. Well, there's another few names for that one as well, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I just think, you know, what a, what a great memory for, for this kid that I met. Yeah. And we ended up going to the same school not long after that, and so being great friends with him for a lifetime, literally. Yeah maybe more than a lifetime there, but just things like that, little memories. And, yeah. and I've got great memories of the show with my kids, taking them on Dodgem cars and up the big slippery mm. dips and yep. they're too scared to go down. So you've got to sit with them while they go down one of the, yeah. the old chaff bags or the yeah. wet bags yeah. on those slippery dips. So great memories there. It's just a great way of bringing the community together too, isn't it? And it does bring the community together. Mm. And it does actually do a lot for the community from an economic point mm. of view because you get mm. so many people that travel from around the well, region. i try getting a motel room in town right now. No Absolutely chance. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is a fantastic thing. So congratulations to all those volunteers over those mm. 150 plus or minus years. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> well, right. Well done. But we'll simply say it's 150. We'll keep it at that for the, for the sake of it, yes. That's right. And and that's their celebration. It is 150th celebration, yes. so that's fantastic. And great to see no rain because I remember as a kid, it would always oh, be, yeah, oh, yeah. show weekend. It should yeah. be raining soon. It'll break the drought. The show's coming to town. <laughs> that's right. It's almost, okay, you need a, a, a break of the drought. Put another show on. That's right, break yeah, the drought. absolutely. But, Nice weather, a little bit chilly, but mm. nice weather out in the mm. sun during the day, the three days, and they Beautiful. did do a fantastic event. Oh, and, well done to all. And I think Margaret was very impressed as well. Oh, that's good to hear. A nice little segue with this in regards to uh, the Dubbo show. Um, there was also a book launch um, in regards to it uh, over the weekend. What was it called there? The uh, Three Days in May. Now, uh, talk me through this. Who, who was the author? So Jen Cowley put it together. Okay. Jen Cowley, OAM, put it together. And the number of contributions she had, and the launch of this was on Friday night, and she Mm. talked about the number of people. She had thousands of interviews they could have done during this process. And again, trying to capture all of that. And even, Mm. as Jen mentioned on the night, doing a chronological process of the show would be a bit tedious. So Mm. it was really, Jen's job was really one of going through and curating, talking to people, getting the good stories, mixing them together, getting some good photographs, just all of That's that. That's amazing. And, and the book does look fantastic. Yeah. So three days in May, celebrating 150 years of the Debo show and its people. Wow. On sale now, $75 yep. for the book. It's a hardcover book. It's a fairly large book, beautiful coffee table book. Yep. And again, you just look through that and you see so many different examples of mm. things that have happened and things that mm. have occurred. And you you just start to realise how important a show is to a community and mm. the Dubbo show to the so Dubbo community. So it's basically like little short stories and snippets of the past of what's happened there from the show? Correct. Just, again, little anecdotes, little snippets, 
just various things that relate to the show. Mm. Jen had some medals on. She had some medals around her neck right. that someone had given her to say, please use these in the launch or somewhere. Yeah. These are medals back from the 1870s yeah. that were awarded to a particular beast or a sheep yeah. or something. I can't remember the exact details yeah. of it. But again, one of those things yeah. where just this history of all these things. And again, it's significant if you go to the show and you put an entry in the cake baking or mm, you have mm. some of your cattle in the show or you just go there to watch some of the rides mm, or watch mm. your kids on the rides, there are so many things the show offers. Mm, and again, mm. all by volunteers, that's what blows people well, away. It, it, and look at this situation here with this book. It, it must have taken a hell of a lot of time to uh, pull this together. I don't, um, I don't know if Jen knows exactly how many hours, but it's goodness. been it's a been passion, a passion of love, surely, to do something like this. I remember talking yeah. to a oh, months ago it would have been now, about uh, the fact that that was her life at the time. She was just yes. so wrapped around this book. But again, so many people put something like this together. Yes. Jen yes. obviously had the ultimate responsibility for it, but so many people contributed to it and so many people yeah. worked away on it and helped her out with it. So mm. well done to Jen, but well done to the entire show society for having the vision to actually put all this together and celebrate the Dubbo show. Oh, so congratulations fantastic. to Jen again. Well done. During the week, uh, week, Matt, there was a crime prevention strategy meeting. Um, look, I know we we talked about last week on the podcast in regards to uh, issues surrounding a crime here in town. Um, this meeting this week is this is a regular meeting that that takes place, uh, and who goes to these meetings? So there's a thing called social justice committee that we have at council right. that talks about not so much crime. I wouldn't call it crime. I'd call it about some sort of crime prevention strategy mm. rather than a crime summit or mm. a, a focus on crime. What you're really trying to do is focus on prevention, mm. focus on what can you put in place to make sure you're stopping things happening. And one of the comments that was made <coughs> was that the police said, if they're arresting an 11-year-old for a crime, then really as a community, we've probably failed to address some root causes mm. that have led them to arrest an mm. 11-year-old. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not so much about the police doing a great job or the court system or the sentencing regime, but again, you would see that there's a failure somewhere yeah. deep down in society yeah. if an 11-year-old is being arrested for a crime that deserves being arrested for. Well, there are for. so many complexities surrounding this, isn't there? You know, like this is not just... It, it, but yet when people start talking about, oh, we need to do more about crime, we need to sort of, there's a crime wave, we've got to stop this. It's not as simple as that. It, 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 there are so many complexities and so many levels in regards to, to any issues of crime. And you can do so much damage to a community when you say, we've got a crime problem, we've got to fix it. Oh, gotcha. And interestingly enough, Absolutely. at the alliance that we talked about before with the various councils from the region in attendance on Friday, it was brought up there just as a bit of the general discussion about, Matt, what's going on in Dubbo? Why is this focus on crime? It's damaging Dubbo, but it damages the region. And, and a few of the mayors there had some examples of previous years where various communities, various councils in our area mm. had a focus on crime or Sydney Media decided it was time to go and focus on one particular town yep. about the crime spike or crime wave that's going through there. And the reputational damage and the damage to tourism, the damage yep. to the hospitality sector, absolutely significant for something that really is a matter of how you want to read the stats. And yep. that's the thing we've talked before. Yep. I look at the Boxar stats and I 
pull those apart and look at those and yeah. slice them and look at them uphill and down dale. Yeah. And if you want to be negative and if you want to focus negatively, you could make any place look yeah. terrible just yeah. by pulling out. There's so many stats there, pulling out certain yeah. areas, certain categories, certain changes, whatever you want to do. And if you want to make a place look like it's all roses and everyone's just standing around sniffing the roses and isn't it wonderful, mm. you can make any place look magnificent. Mm. What you should be doing, I think, is having these conversations behind the scenes. And, and this particular meeting during the week, for example. Yeah, so who, who was at this meeting during so the week? So this had the crime manager of New South Wales Police. Right. The officer in charge of Dubbo Wellington, so the, the area in our LGA. Yeah. Uh, one of the directors from council, the director of community culture and places, and the CEO were there. And, and they were just talking about this whole development of a crime prevention strategy and the action plan that might come out of that. Mm. Now, again... We have various meetings. I meet with the police commander, for example, on a regular basis. I don't advertise that. I don't go and sit there in front of the paper and say, today we talked about these various issues. Yeah. But it really is about what can we do yeah. quietly behind the scenes to make sure that we're doing everything we can. Again, yeah. keeping in mind, and I can't stress this enough, council does not control the police. No. I meet with the police commander as, from his perspective, he does that as a courtesy to me as mayor and as the council. There's no requirement. I could ring him up and say, I want to meet with you. And he could say, who are you, local government? I don't answer the local government. Basically, bad luck. Mm. I've never had that response from a police commander. Yep. But there's no requirement for them to answer to council. So the police answer the state government. The sentencing laws are set by the state government. And the judicial system is independent. Yep. So they don't answer to the state government yep. per se. They answer to the sentencing laws that the state government puts in place. So... All of these things. And then when you talk about some of the issues that might occur, some of those involve various things. So if you think that maybe some social housing has got too many people living in it and maybe there's some drugs being traded from there, mm. then the state government being responsible for social housing could take away those privilege, yep. fr privileges from those people, for example. Yeah. So all of these things involve the state government. But having said that, I'm the mayor of this community. It's my community. I love this community. Yep. I don't want to see crime. But it's unrealistic to have no crime. There's going to be some crime. How do we reduce it? How do we minimise that? all of those things, but me talking publicly and saying, oh, no, we've got a crime wave, is never going to be good for the community. No, I, I, that's the whole point, isn't it? And I think, look, it's during these sort of moments where this, this great word gets mentioned, lobby. You know, uh, WC Council, they've got the opportunity here to lobby state government for something to happen. It's amazing how many times that this word gets used. So let's, let's look at this and break this down a little bit. Number one. Can council lobby state government authorities to do anything about crime here in town? You can certainly talk to the police minister. You can talk to the local police. You can advocate, but they don't have to listen to you. Yeah. We've, there's no requirement for them to listen. But the same as we might say... But isn't that also like respectful conversations? Correct. Like we're not exactly going to stand right. around with pickets, standing out front of state government going, we want something done. That's right. And there's also no benefit me being on the front page of the paper to say, oh, no, we've got a crime problem. We should get it fixed. I'm sure the police commander doesn't say, huh, look at that. Yeah, yeah. Saw the me on the front page of the paper today. Yeah. Looks like I've got a crime problem. we better get out there and solve it. Yeah. I reckon the police, especially the senior levels of police, know the boxer stats yeah. way better than I do. And in fact, I only get them fairly late. So the December quarter stats, for example, so that or the December year, but they do them in quarters. So at the end of December, those stats didn't come out mm. until about March. Mm. So we're behind. What I can see is behind anyway. The next quarter of stats, I probably won't see till sometime early June. Mm. 
The police obviously have those stats earlier than that. They can see some of that data. They know what's happening in their own internal data. So they're probably on top of that mm. more. And if, if me saying, let's solve crime, mm. if I click my fingers and suddenly the police said, oh, good, the mayor said let's solve the crime, we know how to do it now, yeah. I reckon they've got better ideas oh. on how to reduce well, that crime. Isn't that also insulting to such a huge group of people? Who are out there in in the you know the doing the, their level best to try to to solve crime here in town and every other region? May I suggest, like when people turn around and say, "Yeah, we've got to lobby these people to do more for it." Goodness me, I find that insulting to anyone who's trying to do the right thing in the first place. I, I cannot, for the life of me, see the fact that the police departments and all the other judicial systems sort of stuff are sitting back, going, "I've got an idea." Let's see if we can get Dubbo's crime rate to rise significantly. We're just going to do nothing about it. That's just so insulting, those people who are out there on the beat every single day. And I think you're right. I think there are people already working on it, and the mayor or the council saying, let's do something, is probably not going to change much. And again, we do have those conversations. We do talk to people, but we can't control them. The best we can do is have those conversations. But when we have those conversations, what I typically find is, they're already thinking about things. They're already thinking about strategies. They're doing things ahead. And what we typically do is say, yeah, yeah. how can council help you? Yep. You've got the strategies in place. You've got the ideas, the direction, et cetera. Yep. Can we do something to help you? Is there something that we can do that can help all your efforts there that we can provide some sort of help? Yep. And, and sometimes they've got some things for us to do, but sometimes it's – it's their role, their responsibility yeah. to keep going and working through but that. Isn't this the importance too, though, of having these these discussion groups and you know the prime preven- uh, prevention strategy meetings, getting the people together, talking about okay, where are you up to, how you're going with it, how can we work together better to try to get a better outcome? I've got to be imagining that would be have to be in any whether it's business, whether it's private enterprise, whatever the case may be, or a crime prevention situation, that has to be the way forward. Yeah. There aren't any really other options to do it. Yeah, now that's exactly right. So. That's where councils at. Council, we can't add more police. We can't change no. the, the magistrate or the judicial system or the sentencing. But we'll still be there to help because, again, we love the community. Mm. Yeah. But we, we can't click our fingers. Holding a crime summit, advertising the fact that we've got a crime problem, is not going to do anything about solving that problem. Absolutely. And, and so I think you've really got to take a, a very quiet approach to all of that. Very quickly, Matt, looks like uh, time is very much running out on the clock now in regards to any last submissions uh, for those people who want to look towards putting a proposal together to manage the local pools in the region and also in regards to any budget submissions. Uh, It's all closing up pretty much in the next week or so, aren't they, both of these two areas? That's right. Last chance for submissions. So the 23rd of May, that's Tuesday, is your last chance to put in a submission for the pool if you want to manage one, two, or three of the pools in the Excellent. WLGA. Yes. And the 29th of May, which is the Monday, Monday, the following Monday, obviously, is the last chance to have your say on our draft budget. So go to Your Say. If you go to the Dubbo Council website or just yep. Google Your Say in Dubbo, you'll see lots of information there and you can put submissions in. That's one common place for all of that. So get those submissions in now. Uh, Excellent. Now, Matt, I read with interest during your week your Merrill Memo slash article there you, that uh, you do every week. Um, it's an interesting one to look this week in regards to what's happening there in Carrington Avenue, Carrington Avenue, uh, with the new state office block building. So talk us through it. What was the, the whole, um, I suppose, juxtaposition, the main part of what the article is about? It is interesting with the Carrington office block. We've talked about that before. Mm. 700 employees, 24 officers brought into one. And it reminded me of 
a task force that I presented to. So we go back into ancient history here. Ancient history. November okay, 2012. Oh, okay. So I was, I was thinking more like going back to the Roman days. <laughs> Ponty, it seems like it's a long time ago, <laughs> November 2012. So there was a New South Wales decentralisation task force that was created okay. by the state government. Get people and out of the city, get them to the country. Exactly right. The people on that task force, you had Thomas George, these are members of parliament. Mm -hmm. Thomas George, he was the chair. Richard Torbay, Greg Applin, Craig Bowman and Paul Toole were all on that particular task force. I was invited to present to the task force and on the 20th of February 2013 I did. Mm. And I had a few different ideas and things for them. But the main thing I focused on was a thing that I called a Cato. Right. A combined agency teleworker office. Right. I thought it had to have an acronym to make yeah, it well, sound a bit sexy. Most government operations generally do these days, don't they? Exactly right. And I said to them that the idea here was to rather than move an entire department out mm. to a regional area, and that had happened in the past, there'd been some successful examples of that. State Water, for example, mm. moved yes, out to yes. Dubbo, 310 jobs there. A branch of the Fair Trading Department and moved to Bathurst. That was 40 yes. jobs. Agriculture the, Department Orange there. Yeah, yep, that's well. right. State Debt Recovery Office went to Lithgow with 70 jobs there. Yep. So it had happened. But mm. when I spoke to some people from State Water, one of the things I picked up from that was it was quite difficult for people that were in an office in Sydney to be told that mm. your job was now in Dubbo. You might have had kids in school, yep. partner yep. might have been in a certain job. It was a bit hard to make everyone move. And I mm. think that might have had an impact on staff morale, for example, mm. you were made to move. Yeah. And so my pitch to this particular task force was don't make people move in a whole department. Set up one teleworker office mm. that's got all the facilities you need for a state government office and then say to your employees in Sydney who are mm. working in very expensive real estate yep. and maybe paying way more for their house than they want to pay and long commutes to work, mm. anyone that wants to work in these particular positions in these various departments can move out to a regional area, say Dubbo, for example, Mm. into a Cato. You keep doing your same job, Mm. but you can do it via teleconference, video conference. You can keep doing the same work you do because most of them were working on a computer and with a phone, but you've got a three-minute commute to work. You'll pay half as much for your house. Isn't this fantastic? So I pitched that. When they came out with their final report, it said the government, and I quote, should consider not only whole agency relocations, but partial agency and co-location of services. So mm. I took that to mean yes. my Cato that I pitched yes, to them. absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was 2013. The yep. final report came out. Nothing happened in mm-hmm. the short term. Then we had MBN connected, better connectivity. Yes. Then we had a little pandemic came along. Oh, yes, I remember that. That yes. showed people that yes. you could work remotely. And now mm. the Carrington office block with 700 employees from a range of different yes. agencies is kind of that model. They're calling it a workplace hub. Yes. I don't really care what they call it, yep. but the concept is there. So I don't know how flexible state government departments are today, but I guarantee in the future yep. they'll be able to say to their employees, we've got workplace hubs at various locations across New South Wales. There's one in Dubbo. There might Absolutely. be one in various other locations. I'm going to start calling you Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can move from your yeah. job sitting here in Sydney and eventually it might get to the point where you might need less office space in Sydney yep. for the government there would be a dramatic saving. It would be much cheaper to build an office block in Dubbo than it would be to build the same office yeah. block in Sydney or rent it in Sydney. You know, the thing so, that inspires me most about this is the fact that they listen to you. 
Well, bit, I, I would take a lot of this on board and saying, well, this was a little bit of the idea I talked about back in 2013. Correct, but it took a long time. <laughs> One of the other ideas. It's I all pitched, that patience, sort of. That's that great ways that wise sage again coming through. Take time there, grasshopper. Well, that's that's probably it. The other idea I pitched was payroll tax exemptions for regional businesses. Oh, that idea hasn't come to fruition. Hasn't come across it. I tell you what, there'd be a lot of people support that one. I think, I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> so anyway. I think that's a nice little step. And again, yeah. I'm certainly sure that I wasn't the only one to come up with the idea, but it is nice to see an idea that you pitched a long time Absolutely. ago actually come to some sort of fruition. Oh, well done. Now, mate, it's that time of the week. It, of course, is the Limerick of the Week. Now, it's been a busy little week as per usual. What have you got for us this week? Couldn't go past the 150th show. Oh, of course. So my Limerick this week is a tribute to the 150th Debo show. And it, Here goes it goes like this. Beautiful. Have a crack at it. Dubbo's 150th did unfold, a tale that's worth being told. Fun laughter and shows where the cool wind blows, an experience more precious than gold. Mate, that's wonderful. As per usual, you never cease to amaze me in regards to your poetic abilities. Henry Lawson, you are. Now, in regards to the folks, of course, today being the last day of the Dubbo Show, get out and enjoy those last few moments there. But look, have a wonderful week, people. Enjoy this freezing and cool conditions and starting what has been some very, very nice start to the autumn break. See you, folks. See you all next week. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.